0: The title of this message was Isaiah and His Son, which really was kind of a lame title. And it was really just an early plan for me to know what I was doing with this passage of Scripture. Um, But it wasn't a good title. And I didn't catch Aaron before the the, uh, bulletins went out. But I'll tell you now, the title would be and will be from forevermore from this point forward. Trusting God when your eyes say otherwise. That's what this morning is going to be about. Trusting God... When your eyes say otherwise. You can turn to Isaiah chapter 7. That's going to be home base for us this morning. We're also going to be looking at, in somewhat in tandem, 2 Kings chapter 16. So if you want to have those two passages uh, handy, you could put a... Um, Bookmark in one and, and your finger in another. But home base for us is primarily Isaiah chapter 7. We are in a series of messages from Isaiah chapters 6 through 9 over the course of this fall. We're going to land in a passage in Isaiah chapter 9 on Christmas morning. So we are moving through um, Isaiah chapter 6 through 9. This morning will be in Isaiah chapter 7. This morning we're going to meet the first of four children these four children, in some ways, are little wee escorts through this story line in Isaiah. And I'll just tell you right now, I understand why Isaiah is so, at least in my experience, I can't speak to your experience, so underpreached. Because it's complicated. It really is. I, I want to acknowledge that. I want to just just drag that into the light. We'll call it what it is, but it's not impossible. And I think if we do the work at making sense of it with maybe this first little child as an escort this morning, we can begin to make sense of something that really, I, interestingly enough, is the context for a large part of the New Testament. So in, in, in kind of a cool way, this fall, we're making an investment in something that's going to change the way we read our New Testaments. That's kind of cool, but it's going to take work and it's going to take Some attentiveness and uh, willingness to press on. So, this first little child we're going to meet this morning is going to be one of our escorts, one of our four over the fall. We're also going to meet this morning four kings. Okay? So, the, the, the players this morning is one child. Isaiah is obviously in the story, so I'm not going to count him. But Isaiah's son will be the first child that we're going to meet, and four kings. Okay? And I'm going to do the very best I can. To make this very complicated context make sense. Because I think if we do the work, we'll walk away with some serious goods. Okay? So I'm hopefully gonna fly a plane that has like one wing like this. I don't know how we're gonna do it, but (laughs) we're gonna launch off into it and see what happens. So, Isaiah chapter one, uh, or excuse me, chapter seven, and I'm gonna break this chapter up into four pieces. Okay, so if you're kind of wanting to know how the morning's going to unfold, we're going to look at verses one through, or excuse me, one and two, and then verse three, and then four through six, and then seven through nine. Okay, I'm going to guide you through that time um, and the plan, so you know where we are. So I want I want to use your listening um, currency in a way that's sparing so that you can really get the goods at the end. So you have some currency left. So let's start with chapter 7, verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Now, I, I didn't really pay attention in political science class when I was taking it in, in high school, college. I don't know if I even took it in high school. I don't even remember. I don't really, I wouldn't pay attention to high school on any subject. But in college, I know I didn't pay attention to poli-sci class and all the dynamics of politics and politics. I, here it's, it's interesting here at the age of 48 that I'm really enjoying the politics of this, this context. In fact, I'm finding them riveting because it's making sense of so many other things. It, this is just a little interesting story for you. I was sharing with Christy the other night right at bedtime about these dynamics of the, the Middle Eastern ancient Middle Eastern politics. And I was talking about how riveting and interesting and, and intriguing the whole thing is. And I realized after I finished talking, she didn't respond for a period of time. And then I pointed out that it's also sleep-inducing. So she was, she was fast asleep. So then we laughed and we had a, you know, a, a, I woke her up and then we had a good belly laugh over the whole thing. <laughs> so I totally get it. I've got a sense of humor about it. Just do what you can to hang in there because I think we can make sense of this. Second Kings chapter 16, verses 2 through 4, introduces to the first king, a guy named Ahaz, Okay, Y'all just leave the scripture up there now, and I'll give you a heads up when I'm ready for you to move into a couple of slides. So just keep that verses 1 and 2 up there for now. Now here's Ahaz, beginning in chapter 16 of 2 Kings. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, uh, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. All right, Ahaz is bad news. Okay, the first king that we're meeting this morning is bad news. He's the, he's the king of Judah, and he's not a very good king. We've got a sense of that already. But from our passage in Isaiah, you know there's some dynamics going on with some other people. Okay, this next verse gives us a little glimpse into what's going on in chapter 16 of 2 Kings, verse 5. Then Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah the son of Ramaliel, king of Israel came to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz but could not conquer him. Okay, some background as, as we're getting into Isaiah chapter 7 is that first of all, we need to meet this guy, Ahaz. We know this guy is bad news. I mean, just look at some of the things that he's done. He, he, uh, he didn't do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He burned his own son as an offering and he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Okay, And then also, he's been surrounded by some foreign countries. We're going to talk about who they are in just a moment. But just, just to kind of get the context here, this guy is bad news, and he's had some people come against him and try and lay siege to Jerusalem, but it didn't succeed. Okay, Now let's go ahead and put up this first slide. You know it's going to get crazy When I brought my laser pointer from Jeff Willingham, gratis, giving me this high-speed instrument here. I want you guys to see this. Listen, I'm telling you, I was at seminary before this was even vaguely familiar to me. At seminary. But I want you guys to get this because it's going to help you learn how to read your New Testaments, I think. It's background, okay? Now, let me just point out on the far end here, we have creation. The little line got cut off on my picture on my high-speed, state-of-the-art graphics here. Okay. But creation is down here on the end. We've got a little line there that suggests that we you know that people differ on when that is, but creation is a high watermark. Another high watermark we've got here is the Call of Abram around 2000 years before Christ. Another high watermark is the Exodus about 1500 years before Christ. Now, these are roundabout figures just to help you get a sense of where they l- sit on the storyline. About 1000 years before Christ, King David. Okay. Now, I want to read a passage of a a promise that God made to King David because it's going to be context for the rest of the morning. Okay, so just listen to this little passage, this promise that God made this king, King David, right here. And then it's going to be important later on. God told King David, he said, When your days are fulfilled, this is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you'd like to jot that down. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father's, David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love, hear these words, will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And listen, these key words, this is background context for the entire morning. And your house, David, your house, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Okay, now that's background. Keep that just kind of in the back of your mind as I introduce you to the rest of this storyline. Okay, around, um, uh, this is around 1,000 years before Christ, King David reigns, okay? King David's son is Solomon. King Solomon's son, uh, un- uh, named Rehoboam, unwisely did not listen to the counsel of his elders, but instead listened to his high school buddies. They told him, said, you know what you need to do? You need to be really hard on, on the people, and you need to, to, uh, to make the, the... your dad look like he was easy. To be so hard on them. And the result was it split the kingdom. Okay, it split the kingdom between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Man, this, this, is, this is central, high-water mark story of Israel stuff. But uh, I, I hope this just kind of helps you get a sense of something that like, oh, yeah, okay. Now this is Israel. This is Judah. Two different groups of people. Judah is the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Israel is all the other tribes, the ten other tribes. And Israel's in the north, and Judah is in the south. Now, a period of time passes. Remember the little jagged line there means a certain period of time? Approximately 300 years, just to get a sense of time frame. And then in the north, in Israel, the king's name is Pekah. Okay? And in the south, the king's name is Ahaz. We've met Ahaz already. We know about Ahaz. In fact, I've read about Pekah also. Pekah is the king of Israel, okay? Hit that next slide for me. Let me introduce a third king. This is King Rezin of Syria, okay? He's also somebody that's been mentioned here. What's hard to make sense of is like their parents are mentioned, and those names start to get confusing. Just pull out, tease out the central names. The central names to our story this morning, so far, are Ahaz, king of Judah, Okay? Got that? Pekah, king of Israel, and Rezin, king of Syria. Okay, is that the second slide or the third? Okay, hit the third slide. Now, here's the problem. Okay, this is the story. These two guys are going to team up on Ahaz. Pekah of Israel and Rezin of Syria want to threaten and come up against Ahaz. In fact, they made an attempt to seize Jerusalem, but it failed. Okay, that's all background. You can leave that up here for a few minutes so people can can get a sense of it until we come back to the scripture. If you'd like to jot that down, a simple diagram like this can help you make sense of this whole storyline. Okay? Now, these guys are threatening Jerusalem and Judah. Rezan of Syria and Pekah of Israel are threatening Ahaz of Judah. And it is scaring the people to death. And it's scaring Ahaz to death. In fact, in verse 2 of Isaiah 7, it says, The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. If you've ever been to like Colorado area um, or Montana area where they have aspens, I'm just imagining they're like aspens. You, 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 know, you might know what I'm talking about, aspens. You can just hear them. They go, shh. Just imagine Ahaz and his people just, shh. Pekah and Rezin are coming up against them. They've already made an attempted attack on Jerusalem. And they're coming back. Shh. That's all background as the trees are shaking in the trees. Or the wind is shaking the trees. But God has a message for Ahaz and Judah. That's what, the, this, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. God has a message for Ahaz and Judah. And the message breaks down into three parts. First of all, it's an illustration Okay, that's the first passage we're going to look at in verse 3. Secondly, in verses 4 through 6, it's a charge. And third, verses 7 through 9, it's a poem or a song. Okay, so an illustration, a message or a charge, and then a poem or a song. God has a message for scared Ahaz and the people. And God speaks through Isaiah to Ahaz. And this people. Okay. Let's go back to verse 3. You can put our scripture back on the board. We'll come back to a couple more diagrams. But we've done at least sort of the preliminary work. Okay. Verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 7. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go, to, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear jashub your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Now, you don't need to know a lot of the details about exactly where that's taking place. But what is important that you realize is the meeting place is important because it's pointing out the mindset of Ahaz. He's going out to visit the conduit of the water source. Now, if you were king of Judah and you lived in Jerusalem and you had this big massive wall around Jerusalem, you might find a lot of comfort in this big massive wall. But if you weren't thinking about where you're going to get water when you're under siege then you're not thinking very wisely because water would be kind of (laughs) important. You're going to get thirsty behind that big wall as you're fighting a battle. And if the siege goes on for weeks or months, you could end up dying of dehydration. So you get a mindset or a glimpse into the mindset of Ahaz. He's out inspecting the water source, preparing for another siege by Pekah and Rezin. And in some ways, his inspection of the water source out there, is metaphor of his mindset. Homeboy, if he was really faithful, he'd be at the temple. But instead, he's out inspecting the water source. Now, it's here that Isaiah meets Ahaz with his son, per God's instruction. Take that boy with you, Shear Jashub. Now, I know we have some of y'all that are, are expecting. Expecting, you know, that'd be a great name for a son. You know, I know that'd be kind of weird, but the the name actually means a remnant shall return. Now I'm being facetious. I don't expect any. Here's Sheer Jashub Jones. That'd be kind of weird, but that's his name. A remnant shall return is what his name means. And I thought about how this might go down, where Isaiah walks up with Ahaz to me. Excuse me. Isaiah walks up with Sheer Jashub to meet Ahaz. I was imagining how this conversation might have gone down. Hi, King Ahaz. Isaiah's got got his son, his son shear Jashub, a.k.a. a remnant shall return around. He's got his arm around him. Uh, Sheer Jashub's got his ball cap on. Cubby cap. He's got his cubs cap on. Y'all impressed? I know the cubs won. I, I know and I care. I actually watched half of the game. It was amazing. Okay, So he's got his cubs cap on and he's we're walking along. He says, Hi, King Ahaz. This is my son only a remnant shall remain. Hey, only a remnant shall remain. This is King Ahaz. Okay, you can imagine this awkward moment where he's introducing his son named Only a Remnant Shall Remain to King Ahaz. And you can imagine, too, that Isaiah might even explain, uh, Ahaz, should you press on in what you're conspiring to do, you'll be fulfilling the name I gave my son. See, his name will be Bad News. For you because it'll mean only a remnant of the entire people of Judah will remain if you press on with your own designs. You can imagine that awkward moment. Uh, it just makes me laugh because I think that, man, these prophets are just great at awkward moments. It's like they major in awkward. And Isaiah, I can just imagine how this thing went down where the, he's saying, this is my son, only a remnant shall remain. And then none of them are really knowing what to do with their hands where we're all awkward and this is kind of strange because you're basically telling me I'm doomed if I don't listen to God. It would be like if he presented his son, this is my son, he's got his cubs cap on, and his name is, King Ahaz, his name is, you're doomed if you trust in someone other than God. (laughs) What an unfortunate name for the boy. But what an important illustration for Ahaz. If Ahaz was wise, he would have listened at that point. But that's the illustration. Next comes the charge in verse 4. And say to him, Isaiah, say to King Ahaz, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. At the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramaliel. Because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Ramaliel, has devised evil against you, saying... Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. And let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Now, first of all, what I found interesting is that Isaiah has a sense of humor. It's kind of hard to make out in there, but Isaiah has a sense of humor because in verse 5, he feigns to forget the two kings' names. Look at, listen to how verse 5 reads. Because Syria... Uh, what's that king's name again? Uh, with Ephraim. Uh, what's that king's name again? The son of Ramaliel. They've devised and devised evil against you. I can't even remember their names. They're such chumps. What a great sense of humor. I mean, it's hard to tease out, but I think it's there. Awkward. Major's in awkward, but he's got a sense of humor. God's message for Ahaz though is very clear. Even if you don't see that, God's message for Ahaz is very clear. Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. And this is what's really cool. In the Hebrew, directly, if you to just kind of just draw out the Hebrew directly, the commentators that I'm reading are saying that, are saying that this should be translated this way. Be careful. Let me find my place again. This, yes. Be careful to be quiet. That's a little different meaning than be careful, be quiet, and do not be afraid. Be careful to be quiet. Are take care not to do anything or take care to not do I should say anything Ahaz Man, you should go to the temple you should leave the, the, the water source don't worry about that be careful to go not do anything because these things these people that threaten you what are their names again um, I can't even remember Rezin and Pekka They are small fish in a big pond. In fact, from this point on, I want you to think of these two guys as mice. I'll have a point about that later. Think of them as mice. They are no threat to you, Ahaz, and their days are numbered. You're going to be fine. And here's why, because I made a promise to your father's 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 father, King David. I promised to protect him and his house, which is Judah. I promised I would not forsake Judah. And that I would be the protection of the house of David. Don't worry about these guys. They're just the smoky ends of the stick that once burned are are good for a little more than writing your name in the air. Anybody ever done that? I've watched my kids do that when we got a little bonfire or something. They pull a stick out and they write their name in the sky. That's all these guys. There's no threat here. These guys, their days are numbered. Man, it's easy to read, isn't it? But... I think we ought to acknowledge that it's understandable why Ahaz and the people are scared. Let's see if we can personalize this a little bit. It's understandable why Ahaz and the people are scared. As we're reading the pages here in the safety of Greenville, Texas, it's kind of hard to appreciate. But if you can imagine being in Jerusalem, having been threatened by Pekah and Rezin peka already, being surrounded and thinking, man, what are we gonna do when we run out of water? What are we gonna do when we run out of food? Are we gonna to have to cook each other and eat each other? That's the kind of stuff that happens in a siege. Can you imagine how frightening this must have been for them? It's easy for us to look at them and go, shaking like the aspen, what silly rabbits. But when we really climb into Jerusalem and go, wait a second, this would be a frightening time. Look at the language there in verse 6. Let us go up. Let's just start there. Let us go up. Rezin and Pekka say, let us go up. Let us conquer for ourselves. Let me just first of all acknowledge, when you ever have more than one person up against you, that's stress-inducing, isn't it? If you just got one person against you, you're like, man, that old dirty rat. But when that dirty rat starts to go into cahoots with someone else and you get ganged up on, just that alone is stress-inducing. And he's got pekka and Rezin up against him. There's an us forming where they're talking and they're scheming and they're, 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 they're teaming up with one another and they're planning his end. Understand that it's understandable to be afraid. At least with that, you're going to experience some stress. But their plan is to take Ahaz out of office, likely kill him, and replace him with a guy that's the son of, son of uh, Tahir, or Tabeel. We'll meet later in another verse. The son of Tabeel is a Syrian. They're going to replace a Judah, a, a, a Judah king with a Syrian. You know what that's going to mean for Judah? The end of Judah. It's understandable why these guys are shaking like Aspen. It is a frightening thing. Man, let's even personalize it a little more. Have you ever received a letter from some powerful people saying they're coming after you? Some of you may have received a letter of something like that. Some powerful people came saying they're coming after you. Wouldn't you be scared? Can you at least imagine it? Has anyone ever gotten a letter from the IRS? Were you really happy and excited about it? Look, goody, I got a letter. I love correspondence. It's IRS, man. Your heart's gonna race. You're gonna be scared. Have any of you ever gotten a summons? Has anybody ever been issued a warrant? Stuff like that's kind of frightening. We got all manner of folks here in this church with all manner of backgrounds. So I know that there's folks in here that likely have experienced those kinds of things. Have any of you ever had a phone call from a collection agency? Kind of frightening, isn't it? Your heart starts racing. Like, oh yikes. Have you ever gotten a a letter from a lawyer that's not yours? Anybody? Where he says he's coming after you? My parents were driving back from College Station, Texas years ago when Andy, my younger brother, was in school there. I believe that's where they were driving. And they hit a fog bank where it was so dense that they could not see hardly beyond the front of the car. And... And there's no shoulder, okay? And the worst thing to do in a fog bank is to stop. You know that, right? Anybody just, uh, FYI, don't stop in a fog bank. Well, they didn't stop and they kept going, but guess what? Somebody in front of them stopped completely out of fear, just stopped in the middle of the road. And they, of course, waylaid the back end of this car. Well, that person in that car went after my parents for their job, my my dad's veterinary business of 40-something years, went after their home, went after everything, Man, can you imagine the fear to know when people are ganging up on you and coming after you? I bet you can at least imagine this. Has anyone ever had a big kid at school tell you, I'm going to meet you outside the gate after school, kid. Wagging their big old fat finger in your face. I'm going to see you after school, boy. Man, my heart races because I know what that feels like. That's a scary deal. Imagine this. Instead of it's just one kid, two of them are waiting on you. Can we at least understand why Ahaz and the people are shaking like Aspen? Why they're afraid. Siege would mean starvation. It would mean dehydration and the most terrible kind of death. Man, that's why I think the guy is at the end of the conduit after all. I thought you, know, you remember Ice Apocalypse a few years back. It would be like that, just like that, but different. It would be like that, but about a million times worse. I remember how frantic people were during Ice Ice Apocalypse. I can't get out and get some food. You're not going to starve. It's going to drop tomorrow. It's going to melt tomorrow. But man, siege would have been terrible. But God through Isaiah says, "Don't worry, Ahaz. Be careful to be quiet." Don't do anything. I've made a promise to the house of David. You're going to be fine. Let's look at verse 7. Let's look at the poem. Moving on to the third part and the final part of the passage. And we're going to consider the poem or song for Ahaz. Thus thus says the Lord God in verse 7 of chapter 7 of Isaiah. It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramaliel. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Now, if you're one of those that underlines words or phrases in your Bible that would be a key section the last key passage there the last part of verse 9 if you are not firm in faith you will not be firm at all what's kind of cool about this passage this song this poem it's kind of hard to really make sense of but you see it in contrast to verse 6 where Pekka and Rezin share their plans We're going to come together against Jerusalem and we're going to terrify Jerusalem. These two kings share what their plans are in contrast to what the king of kings' plans are. Here in verse 7, he says, this is God's pronouncement. What these guys are conspiring, these mice, shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. The sovereign king announces his plan. And it's a very different plan than Rezin's and Pekah's. In fact, he says, in fact, Pekah and Rezin's days are numbered. And I'll even give you a time frame. Within 65 years, there won't even be an Ephraim. Let me give you some specifics here in this song, in this promise. In 65 years, there won't even be an Ephraim. It's going to happen even, in fact, a lot sooner. See, what's missing from this song, what's absent from this song that Ahaz would have heard Loud and clear in the absence is there's no mention of the head of Ahaz as David. What's left out of the song is the head of Judah is Ahaz and the head of Ahaz is David. God is saying through song, what scares you won't last, Ahaz. They're temporary. In contrast to my promise that I made to the house of David that is going to be good forever. Forever. Trust me, Ahaz, don't fear those little smoldering brands. And the last part of verse 9 sums up a large part of Isaiah, a theme in Isaiah. If Ahaz and Judah, if you don't move in faith, then no matter what plans you make, they're going to fail in the end. Ahaz and Judah no matter what plans you make, no matter how great they look, and no matter how they might even provide some temporary relief, they will fail in the end. Ahaz needs to trust God, not his own schemes, not his own plans, and not other men even. God is calling Ahaz to trust him alone. Now, I wish I had good news. Turn to Back to 2 Kings chapter 16. You've done the hard work, okay, to this point. So if you're like, man, whew, man, I'm kind of tuckered. You've done the hard work. Okay, we're about to serve up the goods here in a minute, okay? But let me just tell you how this thing turned out. I wish I had really good news, but unfortunately I don't. The rest of the the storyline is over there in, in 2 Kings chapter 16 where we pick up with the rest of the story beginning in verse 7. So Ahaz, he's threatened by King Pekah and King Rezin. He's worried about the next siege. Is this one going to succeed? Are we going to be destroyed? Am I going to be replaced with the son of Tabeel? So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. This is going to be the fourth king that we meet today. Tiglath-Pileser, the third, by the way. Saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. Watch what Ahaz is doing, it's crazy. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus, that's Syria, and took it, carrying its people captive to Kerr, And he killed Rezin. Okay, let's look at this fourth slide, this fourth picture. We'll see if I can describe these, these couple of these dynamics because it's crazy. All right, we know from what I've shared with you already. Oh, oh by the way, this is I titled this slide. It's handy. Hey, Ahaz's faith, faithless, lame, dumb, foolish plan. That's a, that's what it's called in my commentaries. It's, no, I made that up, but that's exactly what it is. Ahaz is faithless, lame, dumb, foolish plan. Okay, you know the storyline. We got Judah. Oh, I spelled Judah wrong, with an E. I was uh, I'm sorry. And Israel up here in the north. Got Judah down here. We got Ahaz. We got Pekah and Rezin coming against Ahaz, like I shared at the, earlier on in the morning. So Ahaz, instead of trusting the Lord, he appeals. To a king named Tiglath Pileser III, the king of Assyria. Now, this is a bold line right here to point out to you that Assyria is not a mouse. Okay, I told you these guys are mice. Rezin, he's a mouse. Pekka, he's a mouse. And by the way, Ahaz and Judah, it's just two little tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they're mice too. Okay, so these are mice. And this guy right here, Tiglath Pileser, the king of Assyria, is not a mouse, not even close. Okay, so Ahaz thinks, I'm going to come up with a plan. Isaiah, I'm not going to listen to you, and I don't care what your son is named. I'm going to come up with a plan that I can see and touch because I want my people to see some action. Okay, so I'm going to appeal to this guy named Tiglath. I wish he had an easier name. Tiglath-Pileser, okay, the third. And I'm going to appeal to him, and let's see the next slide. Let's see what happens. Tiglath-Pileser throws down on Syria just like we planned Uh, It turns out it looks pretty good. Ahaz, he he throws down on Syria. He destroys Damascus in in 732 B.C. And then a few years later, remember time works backward B.C., a few years later, he destroys Samaria, which would be Israel. Okay? So it sounds like it's a plan that worked out. Let's let's see that next slide. Remember I told you they're mice. Okay, leave that up there for now. Okay? It looks like a plan worked out, uh, kind of but not so fast. Okay, I pointed out these guys are mice. Okay, The worst thing that a mouse can do right here is make a deal with a cat. Hit the next slide. Hit the next slide. To make a deal with a cat to go against another couple of mice. Who wins in that scenario? The cat. Okay, that's what happened. A mouse made a deal with a cat to go against another couple of mice. And it didn't go well for Israel. Now, let's go to my first point. These points are now served up. They're ready to eat, ready to enjoy. This story is a great tutor on trust. Here's the first point. Did y'all make some slides for me? Look at that. Good. I love that. Oh, you got all three points up there. Good. Okay. All right. Y'all don't look ahead. Look at the first point. This is the first point. Trusting the Lord is work. I told you, you can imagine living in Jerusalem or imagine even being Ahaz, even though he was was obviously faithless. You can imagine, uh, you can realize it's understandable why they were shaking like aspen in the wind. Why they're afraid. And you might even imagine how Ahaz might think an alliance with Tiglath-Pileser is God's provision. You might even imagine that he thinks or could rationalize Hey, God provided this old kid, this, this king down here in Assyria, to be my teammate here, to protect God's people. I can't but imagine that he'd have a lot of support in that. If you lived in Jerusalem, wouldn't you be like Ahaz? That's a good plan. That's a good plan because old Tiglath Pileser, he's got quite an army, and he's gonna whip up on Rezin and Pekah. I like that plan, Ahaz. You could imagine if you lived in Jerusalem and siege meant the death of you and your family and your children, you can imagine how quickly you would go, Ahaz, that's a good plan. I like it. You might be tempted to think like these guys. You think you got two kids planning to do you in after school. Wouldn't it be tempting to recruit your big, nasty, ugly, mean brother, even if it cost you your lunch for the rest of your life? Man, man. You can understand how it would be tempting. Might you be tempted to cheer too? Think of this for a godless man in hopes of a godly outcome. Might you be tempted to cheer for a godless man in hopes of a godly outcome if you lived in Jerusalem and it was your family at stake? Man, resin and Pekah are ve- very real visible threats. And all of this is background for us to first of all realize it's work to trust in the Lord. It's a whole lot easier to come up with your own schemes and plans. But it's work to trust in the Lord. When your eyes are telling you otherwise, it's work to trust in the Lord. Remember what Isaiah told him. He said, be careful to be quiet. Work at trusting your God, Ahaz, work at staying still and let the Lord work this out. I wanna share a passage with you from Hebrews. You can jot this down, but I'd like for you to listen. I'd like for you to listen. There might be the temptation to think, man, this is kinda of ancient. You know, this is like 27 years ago, 2700 years ago. This is before Jesus. I mean, God's people really had to do different things before Jesus than we have to do now. We don't have to, you know, think like they did now. Faith is different now. All kind of weird stuff that we can think. Let me share with you a message to the Hebrews' church. This side of Christ. If you think, well, I don't have anything in common with ancient Israel, then let me help you realize you have everything in common with the Hebrews' church. They're Christians too. Okay, the Hebrews' church was likely in Rome. And the Hebrews' church, we could say, was surrounded by the bullies. They're surrounded by uh, Rome, obviously, living in Rome, the Roman Empire. But they're also surrounded by other Jews. They likely lived in a section of town that was a Jewish section of town. And let me tell you something: if you trusted Christ as a Jew, you would probably face more persecution from Jews than from Rome. So the Hebrews' preacher is writing a letter, and really, in fact, a sermon to folks, Christians in Rome, about trust. And he's encouraging them in Hebrews chapter 4. He talks about, he refers to the people of Israel, the people of God years and years ago in the wilderness where they did not believe the Lord. They did not trust him. And he said the cost for them is that they did not enter God's rest. And here's what he develops here over the course of a few passages Here in chapters 3 and 4. He says we have come to share in Christ church. While you're under persecution from Rome and other Jews. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And over the course of the next chapter he develops this, this sort of parallel between the Sabbath rest that was promised the people of Israel. And the Sabbath rest that's for us. And he points out that the Sabbath for us is not a day anymore. And people talk about, "I, I can't cut my grass on the Sabbath and I can't go hunting on the Sabbath. They're usually talking about Sunday, first of all, which isn't the Sabbath at all. And second of all, for Christians, man, if you don't want to cut your grass on Sunday and you do that in faith, knock yourself out. But that's not a biblical thought. For Christians, you know what our Sabbath rest is? You know what day the Sabbath rest is for us? Every day. Every single day is a Sabbath rest. Those are the days, today, tomorrow, the day after that, those are the days where we are charged with with the Hebrews preacher, charging the Hebrews church while they're in persecution, under persecution, to rest in our Sabbath rest that is Christ. He's our rest. But listen here what he develops here in the later part of this chapter. He says, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Listen to this next passage. Let us, Hebrews church, Christians, this side of the cross, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let us strive to enter that rest. Let us be careful to be still. The message is still the same. Man, when you have people coming against you, when you have a circumstance that's coming against you, your call is to rest in God. Rest, as we see here, in our Sabbath rest. That is Christ. We rest from self protection. Man, does anybody need to hear that? You don't have to work so hard at protecting yourself and defending yourself. We rest in Christ. We don't have to defend ourselves against Resin and Pecca or whoever else is coming after against you or after you at work or wherever it might be. We don't have to defend ourselves. We don't have to work at those things anymore. Instead, we strive to enter our rest simply in Him. It's work, though, to trust in the Lord. It's work to trust in the Lord, and that's why we have to strive at it. We have to remind each other about it too. You got a letter from the IRS? Trust in the Lord. You got a letter from someone else's lawyer? You can trust him. He's not going to leave you or forsake you. You're part of the house of David too. Did you know that? Man, here's the sad part for Judah. Here's the sad part for this people as they're reaching out for whatever they can grab to protect themselves. And it could be the sad part for us as well. This is the sad part when we reach for something other than God. To depend on the nations, as Ahaz does here, to save them, rather than depending on their God, is to lose their distinct mission to those nations. Could you imagine being a missionary in Syria or Assyria or northern kingdom of Israel when this goes down? Let's just imagine That Ahaz previously sent out some missionaries into those lands. I want you to go and tell the story of Yahweh and what it means to trust Yahweh up there in Assyria. And over there in Syria and up there in northern kingdom of Israel. Can you imagine what it would be like to be a missionary where you hear back home, Oh, you mean the king that sent me out to be a messenger here of trust in the Lord is not trusting in the Lord, but instead is trusting in Tiglath-Pileser? It cripples the message when God's people trust in something other than the Lord. It destroys the message. It jettisons the message when we jettison trust in the Lord. And that's exactly what happened here. On the other hand, (laughs) refusal to depend on on the nations. Refusal to depend on schemes of our own design. And a relentless trust in the Lord is a clarion message to the nations that God can be trusted. People of God, I want you to hear this. Because we're living in the nations right now. Who are you trusting in right now? When our country is in crisis? Maybe your family is in crisis. Maybe your job is in crisis. Maybe your health is in crisis. Who do your neighbors and your friends hear you trusting? Schemes, designs, plans, Tiglath-Pileser, your version? Or do they hear you trusting in the Lord? You want to share Christ with them and what it means to trust Him only? When meanwhile, you're trusting in every design and scheme you can come up with? Your message of trusting Christ to them is bankrupt. Man, this is a time for God's people to trust the Lord. And it's easy to trust the Lord when you're not in danger. But when you're in danger or you're threatened, man, let me tell you something. Your message is the loudest and the clearest and the most potent and the most aromatic. Until a person or a family or a people are completely convinced of God's trustworthiness, They will not lay aside their own contrived attempts of self-protection and lust for security. And they'll make a deal with anyone. And it'll cost you. We should be careful to be quiet, people of God. I don't want to discourage you right now as politics are about as loud as they can be. (laughs) As opinions are about as screamed as they, all caps as they could be. And people are talking about catastrophic outcomes. Man, step into that context and be careful to be quiet. (laughs) Step into that context and strive to enter his rest, trusting that the Lord is good, that you're of the house of David, and that we're going to be fine. (laughs) The second point. Not trusting in him is expensive. Trusting in him is work. But not trusting in him is expensive. I want to share with you the tragic story of what unfolded over there in 2 Kings. After Ahaz made a deal with Tiglath-Pileser. Beginning in verse 10, just listen to this tragedy. Imagine being the house of David. Imagine having the treasure of the temple. Imagine having the fixtures in the temple. The things that were made by your forefathers with particular and specific instructions by God. Imagine having those things and the promise that God gave David as your own. And then listen to what unfolds after Ahaz makes a deal with Tiglath-Pileser. In verse 10 of 2 Kings, verse 16, when King Ahaz went to Damascus, that would be up in Syria, to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. This would have been after Tiglath-Pileser destroyed Damascus. Ahaz is going to go up there and meet him. He's going to have a face-to-face. Maybe to pay homage. Maybe to say thanks. Maybe to pay homage to his gods, which is exactly what unfolds. Listen to what happens. He goes up to Damascus. He saw the altar that was at Damascus. Apparently, by that point, Tiglath-Pileser had set up his own pagan altar there, maybe to worship to his gods, thinking his pagan gods had delivered Syria to him. So he sees this altar, and King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of that altar. Uriah the priest, you mean a Levite? That already has an altar that was made according to the particular instructions from the Lord. Yes, Ahaz sends instructions to him with a model of a pagan altar in its pattern, exact in all its details. And Uriah the priest built that altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. And when the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar. I said, that's nice. That's sweet, Uriah. That looks just like Tiglath-Pileser's. I love it. Out with that old tired Yahweh altar. Get that thing out of here. Let's move the new and better in here. Because, man, it sure did provide, didn't it? Then the king drew near to the altar and he went up on it and he burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and poured his drink offering and threw the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. And the bronze altar that was before the Lord, he removed from the front of the house, from the place between his altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of his altar. Put it over there in a closet. We don't need that old tired thing anymore. We got Tiglath-Pileser's God. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest saying, On the great altar burn the morning burn offering and the evening grain offering and the king's burn offering and his grain offering with the burnt offerings of all the people of the land. This isn't just contaminating Ahaz. The entire people of Judah have sacrificed their God and their worship. It cost them everything to enter into cahoots with Tiglath-Pileser. It cost them everything. To throw at all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice, but the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Uriah the priest did all this as King Ahaz commanded. What a tragic story. Covenant with Assyria cost Judah their worship. Get Yahweh's altar out of here. That's the tragedy of compromise, people of God. That's the tragedy is that you lose God altogether. You trade the truth about God for a lie, it seems, and you worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This sounded so familiar to me. The more and more I thought about it, I realized this is exactly like Anakin Skywalker. Right? Any Star Wars people up in here? It's not exactly like Anakin Skywalker who made a deal with Palpatine who turned out, of course we know, to be the Sith Lord Darth Sidious, right? It's exactly what went down. He later becomes, as a cost there, becomes Darth Vader. He has to live the rest of his life with that big black helmet talking through that electronic voice machine and he spends the entire rest of his life enslaved to the dark side. It came at a great cost. It turns turns out there's actually a genre It's called Faustian genre of books and writings and movies and operas and songs along the lines of this theme. Faust was a German legend that was put into writing later. He was a scholar who was highly successful yet dissatisfied with his life, which led him to make a deal with the devil. And he exchanged his soul for unlimited knowledge and worldly pleasure So apparently there's nothing new under the sun. What Ahaz did is he exchanged his soul and the soul of his people for security and protection from Assyria. Other movies that came to mind that are The Devil's Advocate from 1997, Al Pacino, Keanu Reeves, The Ghost Rider, The Amazing Epic. From Nicolas Cage, it must be the worst movie of all time that I didn't see but I heard about it. The Ghost Rider from 2007. There's nothing new under the sun. What Ahaz did, people have been writing about for ages. And we can be guilty of it. We, cannot, we can be guilty of not trusting the Lord. And when we do, it's going to cost us. It's going to be expensive. It cost Ahaz everything. And the last point is brief, and it leads us toward the end of the message. last point is brief. It comes from Isaiah 40. What a great reminder for Judah. We have the best alliance already. We have the best alliance already. Whatever threats we may face. We have the best alliance. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, the people are reminded, it says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, mice, even the cat, ultimately. Compared to our God, is but a wee grasshopper. It's he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. It's he who spreads them like a tent to dwell in. This is our God. He sits above the earth. We're walking in a promise made to David, to David into to David's house. And this is the promise maker. Look at verse 27. In light of this, why do you say, O Jacob... Why do you say, O Ahaz? Why do you say, O people of Jerusalem? Why might you say, Christian, in 2016, and speak like Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Why do you say those things? Look at the next verse. This is what we're walking in. Have you not known, House of David? Those who take care to be still and wait on him. Those who strive to enter his rest shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Man, God has promised that a remnant shall remain. There's a boy named after it, promise. Sheer Jashim. Can you see his face? And even a faithless king cannot destroy or foil that plan. Our security and blessing are through our union with Christ, not with the perfect defense plan, our plan of alliance. Not through the perfect political plan, our perfect president. A presidential election that doesn't go your way will not foil God's plans of protection for his people, ever, ever. That should put lots of stuff in perspective. He is our alliance, and it's a good one. It's one that lasts and goes the distance, no matter who comes against us.